You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got my friend, Tom Roderick, who's a macro um, portfolio manager at Trium Capital. Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Yeah, I'm very, very happy to be here. Um, it's been, you know, been a long time coming. And um, and yeah, no, uh, it's, uh, it's it's good to be with you. Yep, awesome. And so, you know, Tom, you know, could you, start, could you start by telling the audience a little bit about your background, you know, how you got into the industry and then, you know, how you made your, uh, and you know, how you ended up at Trim Capital, because uh, you've got a pretty interesting history, because so you did like theoretical physics, and then you moved on to, you know, Brevin, and then worked for Hugh Hendry for a bit, and then, um, then you're at Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, so, so like my, my background, uh, my sort of my path into finance and the hedge fund world is not really a very direct one. Um, you know, I was actually, I was actually brought up on a small, um, sheep and cattle farm in, in mid Wales. And so, so very, very different from the, from the, from the shining city on the hill that is London and the world of finance. Um, but, you know, came, came here to study physics at Imperial, um, back in the day, um, and sort of, you know, I, I, I kind of graduated around the time of the financial crisis. And so very much um, sort of became interested in that world. And, you know, I ended up doing, doing an internship like for an investment bank in 2007. Um, is my video card. Oh, for fuck's sake. Okay, apologies. Um, so I don't, so, so yeah, so I, I, I worked for an investment bank in the summer of um, 2007 and saw firsthand um, the mortgage crisis um, because I was working as a quant on the credit derivatives desk. And so very much at the heart of the storm that was about to get unleashed in 2008. Um, and then I ended up working on the, on the graduate scheme at um, Brevin Howard, which which at the time was one of, like one of the biggest hedge funds in the UK, if if not the world, um, and kind of spent a few years there um, before I went to work for Hugh Hendry at Eclectica, um, and sort of you know became very much you know a portfolio manager in my own right under him, um, and you know with the closure of Eclectica. Um, basically kind of wanted to, um, you know, work on my own venture um, and join Trium Capital in London to do that, basically. Got it, got it. And so when did you realize that you sort of wanted to do finance and um, especially because your background in physics and as much as, um, and as much as physics is, I guess, um, so, so as much as physics is, Sort of a background for a lot of quants. So you know, when did you make that shift from just doing physics to finance? Yeah. So 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 the, so the way that I see it, they're actually not that um, dissimilar, right? Because you kind of you're trying to make sense of an imperfect world, right? And you know, physics is all about you know that those kind of like those big picture principles, um, trying to you know establish a set of rules on a world which is kind of unknown, and to try and make sense of it as best you can. 
Um, now, and I, I think this is very much the same with the economic world. You know, it's um, in some ways, it's more opaque, it's less explainable, but you know, there are kind of like broad brushstrokes of, um, of sort of, of themes and trends which sort of like go through it. They're like not really rules per se, but like an uncertain set of rules and a sort of like, um, it's, it's just trying to understand this, this big system. And so, you know, that's, that's what you're trying to do, trying to do in physics, right? You know, if you're, if you're studying quantum mechanics, you're trying to, you're trying to understand um, the way the world works, even if um, the building blocks are kind of, don't really make a huge amount of sense from, a, from an intuitive perspective. Um, and it can be the same in finance, right? You know, you have, you have um, these rules, which were not rules, but sort of like um, themes which come back again and again, you know, you've got technical analysis, which, you know, in some sense, it doesn't really make any sense that um, a, a trend, like an upward slope and trend line would be something that's important for governing the price of, you know, let's say 10 year government bonds, but but they do. And, you know, you have these, you have these kind of like curious links between stuff. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what you have to do as a macro manager is to kind of keep your mind open and kind of appreciate that you never fully understand what's going on. You're just trying to, you're just trying to like understand it as best as you can. You're trying to understand it better than the next guy. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I think maybe because of my physics background and the kind of like the way I look at it in sort of like big system thinking, it's often a lot easier to kind of work out what's trying to happen, what's going to happen in the long run. Um, right. But of course, um, to get to the long run, you need to survive the short, the short run. You know, sometimes, um, you know, you, things don't sort of go in a straight line um, the way that you think they're going to do. Um, you can be entirely right in your thesis, but it can take years, years to play out. And you, you, know, you right. can have like vicious counter trend moves against you. So there's basically there's two parts, right? There's like, there's, there's trying to understand the big picture of what's happening. Um, and there's also making sure that you survive the path to get there. Like both of those as a macro manager, I would say are equally important. You know, you've got your, you've got your big thematic views, but you've also got the risk management and um, trying to understand what's going on in the rest of the market, trying to understand who thinks what and what positions are already in the market um, mm, yeah. to try and, to try and, it's, you know, it's just about survival. It's similar because yeah, it's just analyzing systems, right? So, yeah. 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 And, you know, moving on, you know, so, you know, just to get into thinking about um, thinking about markets. Um, so one thing that, you know, you've uh, you've talked a bit about is China. And so, you know, let's start there. So oh, a few things that are going on in China right now is one, the Shanghai law, uh, the lockdown in Shanghai. Then two, broadly speaking, has been an increase in regulation in um in, in, in China, when it comes to tech companies, and three has been the Chinese yuan. So let's so let's start off. Let's start off with the with the lockdown in Shanghai. So you know, how do you think that plays out? And um, and do you think the the recent devaluation in the yuan or the recent you know, depreciation at least in the yuan has been um, related to some sort of economic slowdown in China, or do you, do you, do you just think you know, it was supposed to slow? Yeah, so so how the lockdown is going to end, I think, is a is a really tricky subject because you know no one really knows what goes on at the heart of the top level of Chinese decision making. Like 
it seems that's even true of like you know a lot of you know professional china policy watchers who are based in china they don't really know what goes on behind the scenes it's very very opaque um my guess is that you know what we've seen time and time again is once they've started with a policy choice, they kind of continue with that until it sort of reaches its natural end. And I'm not really sure we've got there yet. You know, I think, you know, from the from the perspective of the of the um, CCP, they have pretty much managed to reduce the cases in Shanghai. And so I think as far as they're concerned, their policy has worked. Um, now, of course, this is not necessarily a good thing you know this could just like prolong um the crisis in a way because you know covid is not going to go away it's it's kind of it's still rife in the rest of the world it's going to come into china again um and it, they're basically going to be forced to do the same thing in city after city you know there's no there's no natural immunity even in shanghai like the number of infections we've got is very very low there's no natural immunity the vaccines aren't that good and so there's nothing stopping the same thing happening again. Like you can't close your borders forever, right? But at the same time, you could kind of argue that um, China was in a particularly weak spot economically before they decided to go into this lockdown. You know, we had a, a property crisis was sort of um, was sort of coming to a head. Um, you've seen uh, a lot of the listed developers go under, um, all of which looks very very bad for the Chinese leadership. But if they can, if, if they can put the economic woes on something else, you know, this, this, this bug, this alien invasion that's, that sort of um, descended upon them, you know, they're not personally responsible for it. And so, you know, there could be, there could be an element of convenience in, in what they're doing. You know, there's a, there's a shortage of, uh, of goods worldwide, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's not enough oil, there's not enough of a lot of other basic resources. And obviously if, if parts of China are shut down, they use less of them. And so, you know, maybe part of this is convenience, but either way, you know, given that they've had a perceived victory in Shanghai um, and it's a very, very good scapegoat to sort of explain away a weak economy, I don't really, I don't really see um, their policy going anywhere. But talking more about the, the about the housing situation and China's economy more broadly, um, my view is very very pessimistic. Um, you know, you've essentially had um, you know China had one of the greatest demographic dividends in history from um, sort of the mid two thousands to today. Um, they, you know. You, ha you had a combination of a, of a not very old population from, um, you know, the poverty of the past, coupled with the one-child policy, which meant that you had this vast working-age bulge of population, and you know, and as a result, China grew very, very strongly, um, and there was, you know, the the need and desire to build huge amounts of infrastructure, particularly in housing, to sort of um, accommodate those people, you know, to accommodate that huge wave of people sort of um, making their fortunes in the urban cities to the east of China um, from the West. And what I think a lot of people are failing to consider is that, you know, whilst yes, you can sort of, you know, you can socialize the housing development sector, you can, you can sort of like, you can solve the problem in terms of 
the listed equity, but there's a bigger problem here. And that is a problem of that demographic dividend being over. Um, you don't, you know, population growth in China has gone into reverse. Um, working, the working age population has gone into reverse. And, you know, the biggest, the, the, the key factor for um, property desire is urban population growth. And, you know, that is still somewhat, that is still slightly positive now, um, meaning that, you know, you do need to deploy some additional investment in property. Um, but it's, it's nothing like it used to be. And so, you know, whereas previously these huge investment cycles in China have essentially been um, accommodating China's future need for property. You know, you can say, yes, they built it ahead of time. They didn't need all of it right now. You know, but ultimately the, the argument always was, well, they're going to need it in 10 years time. And so, you know, if your economy is a bit weak, why not just build more now? The problem is that whole argument is gone because population growth is not there. And so, you know, any sort of further investment into property is not investment ahead of time, which might be useful at a later date. It's malinvestment, pure and simple. It's just, it's stuff which just doesn't need to be built. And so therein lies the problem that China has right now. Their, their kind of um, investment driven growth model has really come to a natural end. Um, and there doesn't really seem to be any great ideas about what to replace that with. You know, people have been talking about uh, a shift towards consumption. Um, and, you know, that, that would be, that would somewhat solve the problem. Right. Um, you know, if you can allow wages to rise within China and you can allow people to sort of, you know, allow the citizens to capture more of the economics that are currently fall into the state and the, and the sort of the state-owned corporations, you know, you could increase consumption at home and perhaps that would help. Um, the problem is they don't seem to be able to do that at the same time as, you know, retain this overarching state control. You know, if you, if you keep people poor, there's not, you know, they don't, if you keep people poor without too much economic power, without too much political power, it's very convenient. You can kind of perpetuate the state in its current form. Um, China seems to be stuck. It seems to be stuck in this authoritarian, repress people's economic power because you don't want them to have political power. And so it's, it's in a quagmire. If they want to keep that political control, they can't um, sort of unlock the doors of economic repression on the part of their people. And so there's really no good option. Right. And so how do you think, so, you know, this has sort of been the argument that Michael Pettis has detailed out so well is that, you know, as you mentioned, so they have been so focused on the investment function of GDP, you know, they, so one, they've, uh, that's led to overinvestment and then, and beyond, and a, and a large growth in debt. And then beyond that, you know, Michael Pettis has argued for a shift from focusing on investment to focusing on household consumption. And, and so, you know, to that end, you know, how do you think, um sort of the end game for this plays out you know do we end up with a property crash for example or do you or you know is there or is there a possibility that you know china never reopens or is, or something something crazy like that so how do you how do you think this um ends up playing out well i think i i think china china will reopen um i think the pressure that they're facing from their own citizens to reopen 
it's growing and growing. Um, you know, you're you're making your people angry. You know, people have, uh, you know, the the population of China up to I would really say this year has been pretty happy with with the improvement in their lives, right? Um, you know, they don't get to vote. They don't necessarily have a direct say in the system. Right. But on a local level, their needs are met. Their, their, their needs are met. Um, and they feel relatively content. You know, there's the, 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 the grand bargain in China is you keep raising my prosperity and I will allow the system to continue. Um, if the system doesn't allow um, for that, for that continued prosperity, the whole the, the whole model kind of breaks. Um, now, of course, we you know in 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 the West, we have you know a system which, in the short term, may be inferior because um, we have a political process which is you know very easily captured by bickering and sort of short term arguments, um, sort of politicians playing culture games instead of trying to solve real problems. But at the same time, if you have any one political party or any one sort of political ideology, which takes things too far, they'll be thrown out, you know, it will be scrapped and we can start with a new one. It's kind of like it's an anti-fragile system, whereas China has this, you know, overarching fragile system of the CCP built on top of everything. And it's very, very difficult to see how you can sort of change that system and change the way of thinking embedded in it without something seriously breaking. Right. Yeah. And um, I think the other things, like from a policy standpoint, what we're seeing is if we like just as a just as a general rule, if we assume that you know more capitalism and more free uh, free markets, free trade stuff like that is good. You know, we're seeing that China, we're seeing China do the complete opposite of that. You know, increasing regulations on tech. And then beyond that, you know, um, not a lot, not necessarily allowing free flow of capital into and out of the country. You know, you're you're, you're seeing a lot of, I guess, would you agree that we're seeing a lot of bad policy just come out of China, which pretty much just makes the problem worse? Um, yeah, but you know, the the, the problem is that. You know the for for a long long time um you know this this whole investment spending cycle from a top-down state was actually very very good for china economically and you know that rigidity that sort of like that long-term vision of the system was a good thing and now and now it's it's come to come to come to a natural end um economically but politically right. it's just stuck there and so there isn't really the choice there i don't think the, the policy flexibility is really there for um anyone to come and change it you know if if z himself sort of recognizes the flaws in the system and wants to shift to be um more capitalistic more more open um maybe it can happen but there, there seems to be absolutely no signs of that he seems to regard he seems to see things in a very sort of zero sum kind of a way, you know, much the same way that Vladimir Putin sees the world. It's like we only win by you losing. Um, that kind of ideology seems to be um, very prevalent in authoritarian dictators. And, 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 you know, like it kind of makes sense, right? Because either you hold absolute power or the guy next to you holds absolute power. So, you know, in your 
in the political games closest to you, it is a zero-sum game. But the problem is, economically, it's not. And so, you know, you, you, you have these entrenched bad policy outcomes. And yes, like, policy is not great. Um, a lot of people sort of look at what's happened um, with Russia invading Ukraine and sort of see it as a good thing for China. I, I, I find that quite frankly bizarre. Like China is at the moment quite economically integrated into the rest of the world, um, far more so than the former Soviet Union was at its peak. And, and you know, basically Russia is sort of push, has pushed the West to sort of unite and to um, to sort of go against authoritarian forms of government, and that kind of that kind of reverberates quite strongly back onto China. It makes their it makes um, what they want to do very very difficult. You know, the West is just going to carry on along this path of of deglobalization. You know, kind of ensuring the security of its supply chains and products um, away from parts of the world which whose thinking don't align with uh, align with their own and so you know russia has made a giant mess um which has made life very very difficult for china and is you know and it's sort of like you know before you sort of china could you know you you like the, the gap that the, the two things that china could choose were like relatively close um you know they could kind of go for a more gradual like realignment with the west or sort of like gradually move away um but what Russia has done is kind of widened the jaws of that decision. Um, and seemingly it's made them more and more entrenched in their sort of authoritarian top-down led model because, you know, no one in China has the, has the guts or the, or the ability, it seems, to, to kind of bridge that chasm in terms of like the policy shift that they need to make to kind of, you know, reorientate themselves back with western consumption and you know consumption is important you need like someone someone has to buy your goods if you look at the if you look at the heart of every empire there's ever been it's not been the place where the coal comes out of the ground it's been the 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 the, the big cities like you know um as as your as your mentor mike green likes to say all roads lead to rome and you know china does not doesn't seem to want to be Rome. It doesn't seem to want to be the center of consumption. Um, it, it can't do it. Politically, it seems to be infeasible. And and yeah, so they're kind of they're kind of stuck. And so 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 they're basically forced to kind of double down supporting authoritarian Russia in in the kind of dumb decision that they made to go to war with Ukraine. And as a result, they can't change their terrible policy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know the other thing when it comes to Russia Ukraine is that you know we've seen a broad rise in the price of both agricultural commodities as well as energy, and both of which are relatively large imports for China. And so you could see that, for example, when it comes to livestock feed, you know they've they've, they've basically tried their best to get their hands on all grain that they can, and seeing that grain prices are through the roof, you know it's. That, that's another place where China is losing out. But but generally speaking, so, you know, what people like to argue is that, you know, historically, uh, or not historically, but at least post-World War II, we've had sort of a bipolar world where we had the Soviet Union and then we've had the U.S. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, we sort of had just the U.S. as a superpower. And so now, in a way, China 
is trying to take that role of the former Soviet Union as the as the other pole to the world. And so one thing that they did um, in the aftermath of Russia Ukraine was they got the Saudis to sell oil to them in Yuan. And do, do you think do you, do you think that there is any chance of one you know China just on a broad scale becoming some sort of a superpower? Or uh, and uh, and do you think that you know this trend of you know China sort of getting their way? So if I remember correctly, there's a there, there was a China Russia made a deal to you know to trade energy and believe it was the digital yuan, if I remember correctly, or something like that. So do you, do you think uh, as a do you think just broadly speaking, the yuan as a whole is going to play a big role in um, in global trade and global uh, and in the global economy? Well, at the moment, you know to first order it's pegged to the dollar anyway right you know the moves relative to the dollar are not that big even in the last kind of month or so and so you know why why would you shift to something which is which is more illiquid very very difficult to buy anything with when you can just use the us dollar like you know you've got to provide some form of differentiation right you know it's like yeah, there's just, I, I, I don't really see why sort of third party countries would rather do their trade in yuan. And, you know, and if, and if it is pegged to the US dollar, then the question is, you know, does the, does the PVOC control what level it right. trades at and relative to other non-pegged stuff? Or does the Federal Reserve decide where it trades? And at the moment, it's very, very clear that the Federal Reserve decides where that pegged pair trades relative to everything else. And so, you know, US policy dominates. Um, we've seen uh, in COVID times that the Fed were willing to backstop the US dollar in times of crisis. Um, everyone understands and uses the dollar, you know, there's dollar bills like transacting all around the world. Like I don't know of any, uh, any third country which uses yuan bills to pay for anything. And I don't expect them to anytime soon. You know, the thing Absolutely, is, yeah. you, can't, you, can't, you can't move it around very much. What, what, where do you park your excess, excess yuan? You know, it's all very well to say, okay, we can go back to a barter economy whereby um, the yuan is the intermediary. But, but you know, but really you're just you're just trying to get rid of your yuan as, as soon as possible, right? You're you're using it as a bridge. Let's say you know someone wants gold, someone wants oil. You do a swap through the through the medium of the yuan. You know that swap being done through the medium of dollars makes very little difference to the price of the dollar. That swap being done in yuan makes very little difference to the price of the yuan or the desire to hold it. Right. You know what really makes a difference in terms of in terms of what currency people want to kind of hold is where you park the excess, you know, to, to have an investable asset, um, a safe asset to park your money. And yet, you know, I do, I do agree that, you know, the US government has made um, the US dollar less safe for certain actors who sort of go against it, you know, the, the sort of the sanctions against Russia. But ultimately, I don't really see any, but all they've done really is made, um, the best currency to transact in slightly worse. It's not like something else has become better as a result. You know, the yuan is just as closed as it ever was. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of like, in terms of like where the yuan ought to trade, um, 
you know, from a pure current account perspective, a lot of people would sort of argue, okay, it should be, it should trade higher, right? Um, it should be more valuable relative to the US dollar. Mm. Um, but the thing is, I think, I think the real question is, if you, you know, if China opened up its capital account today, because the thing is, the current account is open, you can, you know, you can trade back and forth into China. Um, what's not open is the capital account. And so if you really want to know where the free market value is of the yuan, the way that you find that is by opening the capital account. And if you look at the value of assets priced in yuan versus assets priced in dollars, dollar assets are cheaper right now. You know, you look at you look at the Chinese housing market, it's like 300% of Chinese GDP. Um, now, after the fall in US stock market, it's by far the biggest asset class in the world. Um, it's also a complete disaster. You know, there's no, there's no price discovery at the moment. Um, volumes of sales of Chinese property have fallen off a cliff. There's still overinvestment. Mm. Um, yeah. As, as a Chinese uh, national, you can't get money out of the country right now. You know, it always used to be the one. You know, there was a lot of people would you know try and try and buy um, apartments in Toronto or or Auckland or London or wherever it was, or you know just take cash out to Macau with suitcases. Obviously, you know none of that can happen at the moment. Um, money in China is stuck in China. Um, I think the desire of the, of the Chinese investor to invest in overseas assets is far higher than the desire of international investors to invest in China, which is already kind of the more open end of the channel. So it's very, very clear to me that, you know, if you just removed all restrictions from the Yuan, it would sell off a lot. Um, and that's notwithstanding the fact that China are stuck in this kind of like fragile, unchangeable policy equilibrium, which they can't get out of. And their demographics are sort of going down the pan at the same time. Like it's, yeah, I, like I, I just don't see why anyone would want to hold you on right now. Mm, got it, got it. Yeah. Moving on, I wanted to start talking about what's going on the U.S. with regards to rates, inflation, stuff like that. And so now how are you how are you thinking through what's going on and what's going on with, uh, with inflation, you know, transitory versus non-transitory? And, and, you know, how do you and, you know, what do you think uh, the implications for rates are in the sense that, you know, when does, you know, when does the narrative sort of shift from well, well, what at least at the moment seems to be, you know, very inflation focused to something focused on demand destruction and a slowdown in growth? So I think, first of all, um, it's useful to talk about what's actually priced in today. Because um, it's, 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 it's super easy to have an academic discussion about this and to sort of, you know, to say, oh, demand destruction is happening, um, rates are too high, it's all going to change. You know, everyone is expecting inflation forever. Actually, there's going to be a recession. You know, if, if, if you look at what's priced in today, I just got a, a, a chart um, in front of me on my screen. I don't know if we can share it later. Um, but you look, like one year, one year US inflation expectations are 5%. One year, one year forward expectations are 3%. And then if you go and look at like all the way out to five year, five year inflation expectations, they're at two and a half percent. Now two and a half, so, so basically what's priced in is inflation coming all the way back from the current elevated levels back to normal. 
um, actually fairly quickly. If you look at um, that five-year, five-year inflation versus history, it's pretty low. And so, you know, the long-term inflation expectations um, are really quite low right now. And so, you know, inflation coming down relatively quickly is actually what's priced in. And so I think people should bear that in mind when they sort of, you know, try and suggest that, you know, there's a there's an opportunity to kind of like go long bonds and to expect inflation to come down. Like that's already what's priced. Um, and then, you know, if you look at if, if you look at the other, you know, so you can if you look at um, the 10 year Treasury yields, you know, it's, it's a nominal yield. It's made up of two components. Um, one is the is the longer term inflation expectation, and the other bit is is the real yield. You know, um, the amount that you receive in excess of inflation expectations for um, being an asset. And you know, so so we've already, so so we've looked at the inflation side of the picture, um, which is coming down very aggressively um, to below where it was for the average of the last cycle. And then you can look at real rates on top of that. So if you look at um, real rate, if you look at five-year real rates, they've cut, they've come up a long way. You know, they've come up from like one point seven minus one point seven percent to minus twenty basis points. Um, again, um, the entire period, apart from twenty twelve and early twenty thirteen, um, after the great financial crisis five-year real yields were actually higher than that. You know, obviously, you know, we know that they've been very, very low recently post-COVID, but they basically, they haven't even come back to normal, right? They haven't even come back to normal with inflation expectations aggressively priced for inflation to come down. And so, you know, real yields on a five-year basis are absolutely not high. Um, you know, you look further out on the curve, you look at the at the five year, five year forward inflation expectations. Um, those have come up. They've come up from, um, you know, about minus 50 basis points to, to plus 50 basis points. And, you know, everyone's freaking out. Everyone's saying the economy cannot possibly hack this level of real rates, which, you know, just just to reiterate is based on inflation coming all the way back down to where it was in the previous cycle, you know, five year, five year usually sits around two and a half percent. And so, you know, policy has tightened a lot, but is still really very loose compared to the last cycle. And that's with the expectation of inflation aggressively coming down. And so, you know, given what's priced in, I know which side of the coin that I would rather be on. I, I would say, you know, it's too early to go long bonds at this stage. You know, there's always one or two economic indicators which suggest that recession is, you know, just around the corner. Um, I don't really see it. I don't really, you know, from, from, from rates and inflation expectations, I would say, if anything, Inflation is probably like in in my my guess would be inflation is stickier now than it was pre-COVID. And so inflation expectations five years, five years forward should not be two and a half percent. They should be three percent. That's not that much higher, right? Um 
on top of that, real rates could go higher as well. You know, I could I could be wrong over the next few months. Um, you could see a swoon in risk assets and the, and the Fed sort of pivoting back towards, um, you know, lightening the pace of rate hikes. You know, you've sort of seen some suggestions that they're going to do half, half a percent, half a percent, and then stop. The problem is that the inflation problem still hasn't been solved. Um, and if you look at the, if you look at the balance sheet, you know, from uh, at the end of 2019, uh, the balance sheet was about five trillion US dollars. It then shot up um, in the last couple of years, <coughs> pardon me, um, up to nine trillion dollars. Um, the pace of QT that's been announced so far of quantitative tightening is to reduce that by about a trillion dollars a year. Like that's you know a year from now that still leaves an enormous amount of liquidity left. So, you know, you've got two things. You've got, you've got the price of money and you've got the availability of money. And, you know, what, what causes, like, you know, real demand destruction is money just not being available, right? You know, just there is no credit available to you at any price. You, ca you cannot roll over your loans even at penal rates. That's what, that's what really causes the bust. The price of money, you know, is a much, much slower um, acting phenomenon you know, if you can roll over your loans, but, you know, you're paying a bit more than you paid before, okay, you, you know, from an equity perspective of a company, it's not great, like, you know, you're not, you're, you, you know, maybe your share price is too expensive, you need to, you know, your, your profits are going to come down, but you're still going to survive, you're still fine. And then, so, so for me, you know, rates are not that high anyway, if you look at, and so that's the, that's the price of money, if you look at the availability of money, starting from the Fed's balance sheet, it's, there's just an insane amount of liquidity there. Like I would say, you know, people talk about terminal rates, but my question is, where is the terminal balance sheet? Because it sure as hell ain't $8 trillion. It's probably five or six, which means an enormous amount of liquidity needs to come out before we have any hope of addressing inflation. Um, you know, you look, at, you look at the banking sector, there's no issue, right? Like there's, there's there's no there's no drama about banks, you know, not not wanting to to issue loans. Um, banks are still seemingly quite active and want to provide capital to people. Um, so you know, both on the private sector and on the public sector, like liquidity, the availability of money is there. And so, I I don't really understand these arguments that you know rates are going to peak um it's just it's just not there like it's 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 basically you're fighting you're you know you're basically you're doing a trade which is already priced in i would i would rather take the other side which is that inflation will you know quite likely prove to be sticky the fed may delay for a bit but then be forced to pivot back towards more aggressive policy to actually have any chance of controlling inflation. Mm, that, that, that's interesting. And so remember you wrote a piece about um, how you use the three D's framework. And so, you know, could you describe, uh, you know, could you describe what the three D's are and, you know, how they fit within that, within, within that investing framework? Yeah, sure. So, so, so that I use as a framework to kind of, um, 
understand how um, like the longer term inflationary dynamics are changing. And so, you know, you can get inflation through through different different ways, right? Like, <clears throat> you know, one way which you sort of saw in the 60s was, you know, a large amount of new workers entering the workforce and needing capital to be spent on them. And at the same time, you had, you know, huge fiscal stimulus. And this time we don't, you know, the demographics are not the same. And there's there's not that you know, we have there's 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 a lack of um workers in China, um, which means that you know we we're more likely to have a labor issue at home. Um, but there isn't the same need to employ huge amounts of new people entering the workforce with new capital. Um, what we do need new capital for is something that's different. And this is where my kind of 3D framework comes in. <clears throat> so the three Ds are decarbonization, deglobalization, and demographics, all three of which I think lead to inflation being higher in the medium term. <coughs> um, so to start, if, 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 you, if you take decarbonization to start with, like what, what is the aim? What's the agenda of decarbonization? The agenda of decarbonization is to um, change where we get our power from, um, away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. <clears throat> and it's a shift away from the internal combustion engine, burning petrol and diesel, um, to electric vehicles, which tap into the grid. Um, like succeeding in this kind of decarbonization agenda means that, you know, let's say by 2040, um, in productivity terms, we have cars which get us from place to place, no cheaper, no quicker. We have energy which is, you know, no better, no cheaper, but the same, just removing carbon dioxide from the equation. And so we have this huge amount of required investment just to get back to the same place in price terms. Um, so, you know, there's a huge amount of capital investor in investment that needs to be made um, with no efficiency gains as a result, you know, and, and basically, you know, we're, we're solving for something which is not priced. If you look at, if you look at the way that the world worked over the last 15 years, it's about, you know, efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. It's about, um, you know, making products as efficiently as possible, reducing costs, reducing labor costs by um, using Chinese labor rather than American labor. Um, and it's, you know, just, you know, if, if you need to, you know, burn how much energy you need, just do it as long as, the, as long as it's available, it doesn't matter. You know, decarbonization turns all of that on its head. And, you know, there is a question mark about, you know, how much um, we kind of stick behind that theme into, um, bad times but you know right now in Europe at least um, we are you know there's a war on Europe's borders there's a massive shortage of energy and politicians are basically doubling down on the renewable energy agenda and, you know the reason the reason is partly understandable is because you know the more nuclear solar wind you have the less gas you need to buy from Russia and so it's right. sort of it sort of kind of makes sense, which, which brings me yeah, yeah, which brings me to the second D, which is deglobalization. You know, we've had a period of globalization where everyone has tried to, you know, make supply chains as efficient as possible, 
everything has been about just in time delivery, um, you know, not keeping much inventories, having these huge spider like um, supply chains um, going all around the world, um, using the cheapest labor, the cheapest sources of fuel, the cheapest everything. Like that, that model has very clearly come a cropper, right? Um, the fact that we don't have inventory of key goods, the fact that uh, no Western countries are, self, are even close to being self-sustainable in terms of a lot of the products that they need is causing a real, a real problem. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons why we're seeing all of this inflation. Um, so, you know, we need to move away uh, from, you know, just worrying about the price of our goods to worrying about the availability of our goods. And the way that we ensure the availability of our goods is to, is to build more infrastructure and build that infrastructure closer to home. And again, you know, there was a reason why, thing, why these supply chains spread themselves across the world in the first place. It was because the price was lower. And so now we're basically saying, you know, much like in decarbonization, we're not focusing on price. We're focusing on security of supply. And the fact that Russia has just invaded Ukraine makes it even more necessary to worry about security of supply. And so, you know, these, these two things combined, you know, require a vast investment spend basically to get back to the same place. You know, if we could, if we could sort of, and re remove the reliance on China in our supply chains by 2040 and everything kind of cost the same and was equally productive, we would consider that a win. You know, so again, price is not the goal. And the third D is, I sort of touched upon a bit already, is demographics. Um, there was this big labor arbitrage where we, you know, China Chinese wages were much lower than US wages. Um, there was a huge amount of excess labor capacity in China. And so, the sort of the labor market um, became globalized and all of the jobs went to China. Um, and as a result, wages stayed relatively low in the West. There was, there was sort of like, you know, there's a global excess supply of labor. Um, that's not really true anymore. And so, you know, all of these three things together, I think lead to a higher inflation world. And so, you know, COVID was kind of like the kicker um, it was the sort of the invasion which caused which caused the radicalization in policy. Um, but the inflation was coming anyway, as far as I'm concerned. You know, and you can look at this. So if if I could, if if you if I may start talking about um the stock market in in sort of combination with all of these factors as well. <clears throat> um so if you look, you know, particularly at the US stock market. Like I think all of this sort of feeds together quite nicely in this sort of like, you know, this, this sort of big system thinking that I like. Um, if you look at the period from 2010 to 2020, it was one of the best times to be a listed company in aggregate in history, because, you know, if you look at where all the gains came from, they came from very, very low investment spending stuff, you know, advertising, social media, um, very, very high margin businesses, which relative to their market cap required very, very little investment. And at the same time, you know, there was an initially like an excess capacity of a lot of different commodities that we had, you know, all of the mines were built out, they, they were all overbuilt out, right? You know, the last commodity super cycle 
ended with excess commodity production. And so all of the physical infrastructure that was needed was there. There was no need to spend on physical infrastructure. At the same time, you know, tech companies had sort of come up with these new business models to squeeze consumers uh, of, of um, selling them subscriptions rather than high upfront cost products and of selling them advertising, you know, we're now advertised to, to the eyeballs. Like, you know, you, you look at, you look at social networks now versus five years ago, there's ads everywhere. You look at Google search, you know, half of your screen is ads. It's, it, it's like the, the utility of the product is diminishing and instead we're being served advertising. And at the same time, you sign up to these little subscriptions here and there for like, you know, extra storage capacity, you know, various different streaming platforms, this and that. And you, you just don't notice all of these subscriptions coming out of your account until you do. And so I think, you know, we're, we're starting to reach a point of saturation of that sort of like low investment um, subscription slash advertising sort of hidden, hidden sort of um, profits go into large corporates. Um, which led to stocks, you know, being on an absolute tear and, and you know, being more, in, in, on some measures, more highly valued than they'd ever been before in history. Because, you know, on an aggregate level, you, you basically, companies had found out new ways to extract revenue out of people without them noticing. There was very little investment spending needed because, we had the excess capacity from the last commodity super cycle. And so, you know, in some, in some ways, in hindsight, it's no surprise that the stock market got as elevated as it was. But of course, you know what I'm going to say, all of this is getting turned on its head. You know, we, we now have a shortage of commodities. We, we need to, um, bring all these supply chains and investment processes back to home. We need to decarbonize the economy. All of these things require at an aggregate level, huge amounts of spending without really much coming back in the way of profits to companies on an aggregate level. You know, yes, if you, if you own a coal mine or if you're solving problems in the industrial supply chain, you'll make money. But, you know, as a percentage of market cap, very few companies are doing that. You know, most of them are, you know, a lot of it is software or services or, or kind of like soft style businesses, um, which don't really have to spend that much money and have been able to kind of saturate your eyeballs and bank accounts with advertising and subscriptions. All of that, all of that's coming to an end. All of that is changing. And as a result, I see higher investment spending and stocks entering a bear market. Um, that doesn't mean that the economy is necessarily going to do that badly. You know, there is a need for, for wage hikes, right? Um, because we can't, you know, the, the labor arbitrage gap has been closed. And so the only way to produce stuff um, is to pay people more money. And, you know, if you pay people more money, that, that kind of, you know, given, given like lower earners that money, their money sort of filtrates through the system much, much quicker. You know, you give, you give, you give someone on the breadline a thousand pounds, they spend it. You give a millionaire a thousand pounds, they probably save it. 
And so, you know, the velocity of money of higher wages um, sort of circulates through the economy pretty quickly. And so what I think, you know, we've seen this, we've seen this sort of like, you know, since the 1980s, we've had this massive bond bull market um, since 2010. And, you know, arguably even, you know, since 1990, you've seen this massive, massive elevation of, um, of price to earnings multiples in the equity market. You've had very, you know, diminishing investment spending. And I think all of these things change. And so what I think happens as a result is that, you know, stocks do worse relative to wages. Stocks do worse relative to GDP. It's almost, you know, I think people who joined the market only recently, you know, which, which I am as well, but I sort of like, you know, I'm a keen, um, you know, I, I like to look at economic history as well. Um, the sort of the expectation is that stocks will always outperform the economy. Um, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. I think we're going to go through a long period of time where stocks are going to underperform GDP growth. And so, you know, I, I actually don't, you know, people sort of look at the stock market and they see a huge problem for the economy. I actually think that the economy, you know, um, you know, we're still going to have cycles. We're still going to have recessionary periods. We're still going to have growth periods. But I think, you know, over each period, the stock market loses pace relative to GDP growth. Um, and so, yeah, so, so my view is, you know, is not very good for risk assets in the sense that even if the economy does well, I don't think stocks will do well. If the economy doesn't do well, I think the inflation still stays there and we end up in a stagflationary environment and stocks probably do even worse um, given the starting point. So bad or worse. Yeah, so very pessimistic, very pessimistic on the stock market, not so pessimistic on the economy. I don't think bonds are the right trade just yet. Yep. Um, I think it's, it's better to be short equities rather than to be long bonds at this stage. Got it, got it, yeah. Also to wrap up the podcast, wanted to ask you, um, you know, do you have any interesting stories from you know working with Hugh Hendry um, when you when you were at um, Eclectica? This would be a fun um, one. Yeah, Hugh, Hugh's an interesting guy, right? Um, and so, you know, so he he kind of came into into markets by you know similarly unconventional path to me. You know, he's like you know came from the the mean streets of Glasgow and sort of ended up in finance through those means and so I think he's not he, he he doesn't look like a typical finance guy he doesn't act like a typical finance guy but actually you know I think people people look look at him and sort of like they see the acid capitalist and they think that there's there's acid there's drugs there's parties I actually think his drug is is macro his drug is macro and working out and so He's not as crazy as you may think he is, um, but that's not to say that there aren't, you know, there aren't some good stories. Um, you know, so the cast of characters um, at Eclectica, um, Hughes Firm, was particularly eclectic. Um, we had um, the guy who used to play in, in goal for Spurs, uh, Tottenham Hotspurs for, for the North American audience in, 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 in soccer, football. Um, we had an advisor um, who was um, in his 60s, was about five foot tall and had 
a giant long um, white beard. Um, and he was there to sort of like advise on the process. He was kind of like a guru. Um, we all used to call him Gandalf. Um, and Gandalf would sometimes, and, 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 it, and Gandalf, it, it hurt him to stand up. So, so, sorry, it hurt him to sit down. So he'd often stand up. So, you know, we'd often have marketing meetings, um, you know, where he was pitching to clients. And there would just be this um, five foot tall, um, gray haired, wizened, wizard like character standing at the back. And Hugh would just um, introduce him and say, This is Gandalf. And then not explain who he was or what he was doing there. It was just Gandalf. Um, so there was, uh, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was definitely some curious characters. Um, I, I, I like, yeah, and so what what else do I have? Um, yeah, no, no, another one, another one which stands out is um is is not not so much uh not so much related to markets, but is um is related to Hugh um being an absolute exercise fanatic. Um so I was I was staying with him uh in St. Bart's. We had a bit of a sort of a macro summit and I discovered that his exercise fad at the time was basically sea wading, which basically involves um, walking through like four or five foot high water um, just off the beach and just wading. Um, you know, you basically, you know, working out every muscle in the body, um, just kind of, um, just kind of like walking back and forth. Um, but because, you know, this was in the heat of the day in the Caribbean and he was a pasty Scotsman. Um, sun cream washes off in, the, in salt water. So he had to cover up entirely from head to toe. So he basically would wear like these waders yeah. with like a hat covering his face, almost like a hijab, um, arms completely covered. And, you know, there was quite a lot of seaweed um, on this beach as well. And I just remember, like, I was kind of like chilling out at the beach and I just saw him like wading, wading through the water, like coming out of the ocean, like a swamp man, like completely covered, completely covered in, um, in, in, in clothes from head to toe, seaweed like coming off him. It, it just looked like an absolute mad swamp monster. And so that will always stick in the memory. I think if there's anyone else on that beach, they would have been very, very frightened to see this swamp monster coming out of the sea. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think that's a great place to stop. You know, Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast. So I think your Twitter handle is at Tostro, right? T-O-S-T-R-O. Yeah, that's right. T yeah, T-O-S-T-R-O. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. You know, Tom, thank you so much for being on. It was awesome having you. Thanks very much, Sri. Uh, pleasure. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.